Hi, Keith. Thank you for joining us. How are you doing? Hey, how are you doing? Good to be here. Good stuff. Welcome to Outward Unleashed. Uh, I was just checking out some of your uh, content a, a little while ago, so I'm really looking forward into getting into that because I think a lot of our interests actually cross over, funnily enough. But maybe you could just tell our viewers and listeners uh, what your channel focuses on. What do you do? Uh, I cover a lot of different topics, actually. I've got some stuff on uh, kind of deep politics, uh, you know, looking at the, the sort of deeper structures of like the American government system, history of sort of CIA psyops and so on. Uh, a lot of my content is like nationalism focused. Uh, that's one of my big uh, sort of focuses right now is nationalism in the West, the direction of that. Obviously, I'm in Ireland. Um, you know, there's a lot going on in that direction in terms of uh, the mass migration that's been happening here. Uh, hate speech laws that are currently being passed. Uh, just this massive transformation we're seeing across the West right now, uh, this transformation into globalism. So a lot of my content is is focused on sort of critiques of that. Excellent. And just as a side note, I was in Ireland for the first time last week for four days or so. It was lovely. I was kind of blown away how ridiculously friendly everybody was. It felt almost like it was a stereotype playing out. I was like, surely I'm going to meet a real arsehole at some point, but it didn't seem to happen. I'm not seeing that up as a challenge, by the way, Keith, just in case you're wondering. But um, maybe you could tell us about your views on nationalism then, because it's a, it's a dirty word. It's often conflated with racism or white nationalism, perhaps, as well. Uh, but there is something to be said for a national identity of a nature and, uh, sorry, a nation rather, and how in many ways there are efforts to erode that, uh, depending on your output or, or viewpoint, rather. So wh where do you come in on this angle of uh, nationalism? Well, most basically, uh, nationalism is a, is a principle of governance. It says that uh, people should be sovereign over a state. The basis for a state is that it represents a people. You know, the world is is made up of peoples. I know it's it's popular now in, in sort of academia and like left wing circles to deconstruct this idea that you know peoples don't exist now, right? The English are just like a combination of different tribes and Angles and Saxons and stem for the Irish and every group, and you know they'll deconstruct everything down to. Uh, atoms and then they can deconstruct the atoms down to subatomic particles and so on. they'll get very uh, nothing exists right no people exist but i think everyone recognizes right there are peoples uh they have their own customs they have their own ways of life uh they have their own traditions and nationalism just says basically that the you know the the peaceful proper way to govern is to allow those people sovereignty over a homeland um this is the way that things kind of played out since the, the collapse of, of monarchies and so on is, you know, what you found is that as this idea of democracy and self-governance spread, that it tended to spread along the lines of nationalism. Like you think of the sort of anti-colonial uh, movements in the 20th century, and uh, a lot of them had like Marxist uh, ideological trappings, but really it came down along this principle that proved to be popular universally, globally, that a people should be entitled to rule themselves. And no one really objects to that. Um, you know, even people that are very globalist in the West, right? They defend something like uh, Ukraine in the in the Russian war, right? Their whole their whole thing is is that uh, the worst thing ever would be that the Ukrainians should be subjugated by another people, right? And they're all waving the Ukrainian flag. I mean, that's 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 a principle of nationalism. So even in in the background of like liberal arguments, it's kind of there. But then you know you try and apply it uh, in in a fair way. Uh, or in a sort of principled way, and of course you'll get the usual uh, attacks of, of racist or bigot or so on. I mean, that, that's interesting because I think you really hit on something there in the, in the fact that we don't tend to condemn the idea of nationalism or its importance when it's a non-Western 
state. Um, so what what explains this almost reflexive uh, response to nationalism in the West, where we seem to rather enjoy attacking ourselves more than anyone else does? We seem very keen to tear down institutions, traditions, uh, cultures, things like that, that have been uh, traditionally uh, popular uh, in the West. Well, I do think it's very elite-driven, right? I mean, if you look at Poland on mass immigration uh, in every country, people are very much opposed to this. Uh, I did a video on this recently um, where I presented some arguments against mass immigration, and I did look at like the democratic argument, and I looked at Poland, and it really is incredible. I mean, they've done this uh, globally. They've polled countries, and there isn't a single country in the world where the majority are in favor of more immigration, which is kind of an incredible statistic, right? And it's even far more outside of the West. Like, you look at countries outside of the West, and it's generally like 90, 80% of people are opposed to any more migration. So this was never something that had popular support in terms of the transformations uh, we've seen, especially in the last few decades in the West. Uh, so I really see it as an elite-driven thing. And... I, you know, people can get very deep into like sort of psychological explanations of, you know, wh why do Western people sort of attack and deconstruct their own uh, history so much? I think it really is elite driven in terms of, uh, you know, we have an elite that is, uh, you know, we have this sort of liberal capitalist system and we have this sort of cosmopolitan elite. And, you know, these are people that operate globally, this global financial system. They don't especially have ties to community, to tradition. They tend to be more uh, cosmopolitan, open types. And ultimately, uh, you know, these people benefit from globalization. These people are the winners. Uh, they're the, the super elite, the people that fund the NGOs, the people that um, direct academia uh, and media, the people that control the media, own the media in many cases. And their interest isn't in having a nation state. You know, it's kind of an older form for them. It's kind of outlived its purpose. And this new form of governance, of globalism, of global NGOs uh, making decisions through policy papers of like a rights-based pluralism where no people really can uh, assert ownership of a homeland. And it's ultimately an, uh, an anti-democratic principle in that no people is sovereign. What's sovereign is these kind of abstract rights, which ultimately cashes out to rule by NGOs. Like we have this in Ireland now. Uh, they're passing hate speech laws. Uh, some of the most draconian hate speech laws I've ever seen. I mean, they can literally arrest you for having a meme on your phone that could be interpreted as potentially spreading hate, right? Which is how open to interpretation is that, right? Uh, but this is all policies that's just drafted by NGOs, by a professional class. The politicians in many cases don't seem to even know the legislation they're voting for. Um, they're told to vote for it. Uh, and it is this global super elite that's crafting this. It's the same policies in every country. And what this legislation does, just as an example, uh, you know, on the cover, it stops hate, right? It's legislation against hate. What it really does, this kind of legislation, is it says that the Irish people can't really express sovereignty over their, over their homeland again. Because one of the reasons this was brought in is there was a huge people's movement uh, against what's being called here the new plantation, where they bring in thousands of unvetted economic migrants and class communities usually. And people were starting to organize against this. There was a serious people's movement. Um, it was spreading internationally. It's getting huge media coverage. Uh, it was spreading to communities across the country. And politicians said explicitly, like, we need hate speech laws in order to basically deal with the leadership of this and, you know, stop the spread of hate, which... When you cash that out and see what they actually mean when they talk about, you know, spreading hate, what it cashes out to is something like 
uh, an advocate for these communities saying the Irish people should be sovereign over Ireland, right? That's that's a that's a hateful statement there. So yeah, I see. In terms of why you know why in the West why this transformation, I think we just have an elite that is. Uh, you could use a word like treacherous, right? They're they're not loyal to nations. They're not loyal to any tradition or identity, really, beyond the global marketplace. And nationalism is just an, uh, an obstruct to that. That's a good answer. Very comprehensive. Um, I suppose, I mean, it's worth talking about some of the content you've produced. And you've used this phrase, new radicalism, and you've, you've pointed to a few uh, instances of this and a few individuals in general. But what do you mean by this idea of new radicalism? Yeah, so I, I wrote a Substack on this. Uh, it's the first Substack I wrote because um, normally I, I stick to video, but I thought this was worth kind of cashing out more comprehensively because I, I have been observing this for a while that I think mostly due to trends with technology and with the internet especially, we're moving to uh, this kind of new phase of media that's really something we haven't experienced before, right? We're moving away from the traditional sources that people generate their opinions, get their sources of information. Uh, and it's becoming very sort of decentralized and tribalized in a way that I don't think anyone could have predicted like a decade or two decades ago. And this happened in sort of 2015, 16, something like Brexit, the Trump phenomenon. Like, I don't think Trump would have got elected without the internet. Um, there was all of these sort of uh, e-slebs that popped up to support them. There was you know, I remember Infowars used to get like millions of views on their YouTube channel. And that was actually one of the first interviews Trump did in his campaign was he went on Infowars, which was a very big deal. Uh, no president, uh, no presidential candidate had reached out to all media in that way before. Uh, so we were witnessing something that we could sense was very different. Like people were getting radicalized on the Internet. They were getting their views uh, from people online that wasn't from Fox News or CNN or whatever. And they were discovering new sources of information, new worldviews. Now, that was heavily cracked down on with censorship. And we had leaks from Google with Project Veritas where uh, Google employees said, literally, we came together and conspired to make sure that there could be uh, that there could never be another Trump. So they were pretty clear about it. Big tech was pretty clear that they recognized this and they basically worked to destroy this. And in a lot of ways, they did. Right. You had huge censorship on Twitter uh, prior to Elon Musk. Uh, Facebook just wiped out all kinds of, like any kind of political, uh, what we consider radical political ideas were wiped out. YouTube, huge censorship. Every platform really was just utterly transformed in the space of a couple of years. There was levels of censorship people would have never expected. But I think what's happening now in the last few years is that process is restarting because basically, you know, those banned people, the people that were the victims of censorship in 2016, 17, They've figured out new ways to get around this. And that kind of, you know, that pipeline of uh, sort of radicalization is, is starting to flow again. And I think there's a few examples of this. One of the obvious ones is something like the um, the growth of TikTok, of short form media content, something like the Tate phenomenon. Now, I'm not a fan of, of Andrew Tate. There's a lot of problems I have with him. But uh, at the same time, you have to recognize that, uh, you know, more students in schools in Britain know who Andrew Tate is than they know who the Prime Minister of Britain is, right? Um, and a lot of a lot of young men are seeing that and being brought into a kind of worldview they would never have if uh, they did not discover that. So there is like a potential there for something. You see that uh, again, this kind of 
process that happens with technology where people are, are moving to different sources of media and now suddenly we're starting to get solutions to censorship in terms of i think the guest that was on previously mentioned something like rumble which is starting to have a lot of success uh elon musk's twitter uh hasn't been perfect um elon actually replied to me recently on twitter so you know i was banned off twitter for a year and a half so it kind of shows how much things can change that rapidly um, but it, it is better in a lot of ways, right? I think there. I think anyone that's on there now would say, uh, in terms of how many people you can reach, if you're not an established figure, it's a lot more. Uh, the level of draconian censorship, a lot of that is gone. So I see a lot of kind of avenues open up where people are starting to question the mainstream narratives, where there's new ways they can they can find these figures that offer alternative perspectives. And also, I think one thing that's driving this is just like how you know radical or extreme the establishment has become like in a way you know you think there's never a line with the public right you can always push them further and you can make them adapt to anything uh people will buy anything with enough brainwashing but in a sense i think the last few years i think they almost have pushed too far in a few things like something like the you know the the trans ideology the lgbt ideology People are genuinely like really starting to push back against that. Um, I didn't expect the conservative boycott against uh, Budweiser, which did it in response to Budweiser making uh, this figure, Dylan Mulvaney, the, the face of its advertising. I didn't expect that to achieve anything, to be honest, because I've seen so many of these attempted conservative boycotts and they don't really go anywhere and they last for a couple of days on Twitter and that's it. But this is actually a huge success. Uh, Budweiser sales are, are plummeting. I saw another article today. They removed the head of marketing that came up with that marketing campaign. Um, their stock is down like uh, 20 plus percent and it's, it's still fallen. So, um, sorry, not the stock sales. It hasn't affected the stock so much yet. But that was a huge success by conservatives. And I think that specific issue is something where they kind of did push too far. And you have these people now like uh, Matt Walsh, uh, Michael Knowles, some other conservative influencers that have become very popular on the right. And you often get with sort of these conservative figures like that they they're very compromised in their worldview uh, but these guys really aren't compromised on this issue they they are almost more radical pushing back against this than anyone was uh, five six years ago when this issue was just starting to be known and they're really like articulating a strong case against that so i think in a lot of ways like the left has has gone too far on the social issues i think the right is kind of recognizing that the old way of playing this game isn't working so much. You know, you look at uh, maybe what happened in the last election and the, the right's reaction to that. I think people are recognizing that sort of playing by the left rules or, or trying to, uh, you know, kind of be friendly to the other side. It's not going to get you very far with these people. You have to assert your own worldview. And then there are those radical figures there now. There are the platforms like Rumble, Telegram, alt media sites and so on, where people can find these people. And so all of this is kind of converging to have this sort of, like I said, retribalization, where now people are able to reject what they're being given by the mainstream and find, you know, a community that's waiting there with an alternative. All right. So a, a lot to pick up on. That was a great comprehensive answer again. Um, so I suppose I just as of a general curiosity, as, as somebody who's had numerous Twitter bans themselves, did you ever get a concrete reason for what your particular crime was at all? They, they said platform manipulation, which is extremely vague, but it, it was just one of those things. It was a huge bandwave. I remember in, in December 2021, 
like half the half the people I knew got banned on Twitter within a, within a day. So it was just it was obviously something like some NGO or something had handed them a list and said, you know, uh, this sort of network of accounts needs to get wiped out, and that's what happened. Um, but at the time, Twitter was changing a lot. I think Jack Dorsey had resigned only a couple of weeks previously. Um, I just just done a video talking about how how bad things were going to get on Twitter, and then it kind of proved my point. Like I got banned like a week later. Uh, Paul Singer, who's an activist investor, became a major shareholder in Twitter. Um, and yeah, they started outsourcing censorship to these sort of shady NGO organizations. So like I said, it, it looked very bleak. Um, and the fact that, you know, somehow now uh, those people have no power at Twitter anymore is is kind of, a, you know, it's one thing to be some somewhat optimistic about. Yeah, I think I think it'll be looked back at particularly crazy to realize that misgender, quote unquote, misgendering someone was considered a, a red line on Twitter for the longest time, which put a hell of a lot of women's rights activists into this argument with one hand tied behind their back, really, which might might move on to Dylan Mulvaney in a moment. I suppose just as a general curiosity, I've always seen this progression in technology that you mentioned, this almost uh, democratization of it uh, as a positive thing. It, you know, you can be a citizen journalist. You don't have to rely on gatekeepers to tell you what stories you can and not cover. You can break a story before mainstream news channels can, for instance. But it seems to me now it's become somewhat of a wild west where it's more easy for people to actually fall into a groove and only sort of consume one piece of information or one source of information and almost live an alternate reality in that way and find fellow supporters to that feel the same so i mean is this idea of democratization of, of the media is this is this a truth is this a real thing that's happening or is it just made us more myopic in our political views well i do think it's both uh and that that is kind of the downside of it is um you know, how do you have like a shared narrative or a shared truth if everyone is in their own kind of tribal grouping and deciding sort of what they believe based on what they want to believe? Um, but that just seems to be, you know, the general direction of things. And, um, you know, it's it's a problem, but it's like, is it so much a problem for us as it is for the people that are, that are trying to, to uh, organize uh, mass society in terms of the, the people that are in charge right now? Um, because it seems like they'll never be able to get a shared consensus on anything again. Like I think of something like the Iraq War, which is only two decades ago, and after nine eleven, like George W. Bush had something like a a ninety two percent approval rating, which is is kind of crazy to think about now. And it's like you can't imagine a U.S. president ever having that again. Like it's always going to be half half the country hates whoever the president is. And I think if if the U.S. tried to do another war whether it's in the middle east or anywhere else i don't i don't think it would even be possible because of how fragmented society is uh, there would be so many groups that oppose it for different reasons you know there would be racial advocacy groups that are uh, you know opposed to it because it, it doesn't benefit whatever group they represent there would be um conspiracy theorists that would uh, oppose it for certain reasons there would be an anti-war movement libertarian movement there would be a left-wing movement there would be all these sort of young communists it's like trying to get people to buy into a shared narrative like that again just doesn't really seem possible so i could see ways that that will be a problem in the future in terms of if you want to look at it like sort of civilizationally uh but i guess for us um you know who are out of power 
it's like uh, it's it's kind of more of a problem for people that are in power right now because it's I don't really see a solution to it honestly. Yeah. So just to circle back to Dylan Mulvaney, it might just be worth describing who this individual is. Um, I mean, as far as I can see, relatively talentless, prances around cosplaying as a woman, as far as I can see, some sort of grotesque caricature of a, of a woman, in fact, which I understand, you know, I understand why many, many women I know find it you know, quite offensive. So I, I can sort of understand the outrage to it and the condemnation and the, the sort of the right-leaning conservative obsession with their rise to prominence, but why are they so popular in in a successful way? In the in the sense that they have you know millions of online viewers, they've been invited to the White House, endorsements with you know uh, Bud Light. You mentioned earlier, I think I think even some sort of sanitary towel uh, has provided them with endorsements. So what what explains the popularity of this individual from a positive standpoint? Yeah, I think. Uh... Nike as well. He's he's advertising for oh yeah the sports women's, bra women's uh, yeah. Nike yeah, it's, yeah it's it's crazy. I mean it is bizarre because it's not that long ago that this really was an issue. You know people forget, but like the whole like uh, Caitlyn Jenner like magazine cover, all that stuff. I mean no one was really discussing like you know trans rights or or any of this stuff, and even even a decade ago, right? Um, and this whole idea of of deconstructing gender like that was that was. The first, you know, I remember in, in maybe 15, 16, like people would post videos of people saying this, like to laugh at them. Uh, but it only took like two, three years for that to become the orthodoxy. So it is very bizarre. But I mean, yeah, what what motivates it? Um, I mean, I think, again, you can you can maybe uh, deconstruct a lot of this uh, very deeply. But I, I did see a poll recently that like... Uh, in the U.S., at least, the majority of, of uh, young uh, liberal women, that's like liberal women under the age of 35, like the majority of them have uh, a diagnosed mental illness. Um, and I think there's this weird thing in, in society now. You know, we have a, a very sick society for obvious reasons. You know, the breakdown of the family, the lack of, of community, the lack of any sense of, of meaning that most people have. And, you know, people are very mentally uh, sick and unwell. And we've gone into this thing with, with social media as well, where there's become this sort of valorization of, of difference, um, even like a, a celebration of, of mental illness in a lot of cases. Um, you saw this a lot with like sort of the, the Tumblr phenomenon, like that the social justice warriors came out of. Um, but yeah, this like, you know, uh, liberalism in the West seems to have moved into this into this phase of of just celebrating difference for its own sake. Like anything that's not normative is good, right? Uh, it's not good to be white. Uh, it's not good to be male. Um, you know, it's not good to be middle class. It's good to be whatever is different. And there, there's almost like a hierarchy. Like if if you're non-white, that's better. Uh, if you're a gay person, that's better. If you're a trans person, even better. It's like a hierarchy of of victimhood because liberalism in the west has really tied virtue to victimhood you don't have to achieve anything to be virtuous to be worthy of celebration you know you don't have to go off and win any great battles or come up with any great innovation but a lot of people see it now as as a source of of virtue and a source of meaning just for them to celebrate their victim status um and that seems to be you know what the politics of of the left now is is very focused on um, I do think this benefits the, the elites as well to go back to, to kind of what we started on because 
Um, it's very easy to control a population like that, right? You see these people, they're, they're very useful foot soldiers for the establishment. Like, I actually saw a, a video of this Mulvaney character where he, in response to the backlash, he said, well, people that misgender me, I, I just think that should be illegal. I think they should be in jail. Um, and I was arguing with some of these people on, on Twitter today, you know, I saw these people, uh, you know, they have the, the trans flags in their bio and, and stuff. And they, they all support the most... Personality disorders listed, usually. Yeah, yeah. And they all support the most authoritarian legislation in terms of, you know, defending these hate speech laws and, and saying they support anyone with, basically anyone with, with bigoted views to support locking them up. And it's like, you know, when that's the kind of norm of your society, it's, it's very easy for, for the people in power to just uh, stamp out any kind of uh, dissent from, you know, basically the, the healthy, normal people that might want a society that's not run along these lines, right? For sure. And I mean, I mean, just keeping on this topic, because it's something that's been fascinating me for the last few years, this topic of sex and, and gender and how that's portrayed by the, you know, quote unquote, progressive left. Is, is there a possibility this is the one topic that will make them come unstuck? Because they've pushed a lot of, uh, you know, propaganda, false narratives, faith based thinking on things like race and various other social issues. And uh, the average vote has not really possibly invested in a lot of these things but every average voter can tell you instantly what a man and a woman is and i think that's having a collision with reality in a way some of their other claims aren't i mean i don't think i don't think we can have an election cycle now without somebody being asked what is a woman and a lot of people are making their mind up on who they will vote for specifically on this one particular issue yeah no i agree with you i think it's not going away and i think it's going to stay unpopular and you know something i mentioned like the the tate phenomenon like if, if you talk to young men like um the thing is like there's really nothing cool about the left like maybe if you were leftist in the in like the 60s you could be like anti-war and kind of anti-establishment it was kind of cool but it's like you don't really encounter young men that are like all on board with the establishment like they're all on board with like trans rights or whatever i mean you know, you find some some kind of weird people like that. But for the most part, like, there's nothing really uh, cool or interesting about this agenda. So, of course, people are going to find things like Andrew Tate or wh whoever the influencer is that, that opposes this stuff. Um, but, yeah, what you're saying is correct. And I actually think, like, the more intelligent leftists recognize this as well. Uh, this was something I mentioned in, in the subsec I did is uh, someone like Bill Maher, right? He's like an old school leftist, right? He was always kind of pro-free speech and... Uh, kind of a moderate on a lot of issues, um, like not not super radical on a lot of stuff. Um, and in the last year or two, he's started doing a, like a lot of monologues that's really against the trans rights stuff, really against the LGBT stuff. Uh, I saw an article in the New York Times last year that was uh, attacking the use of puberty blockers. So what what you're starting to see is the more intelligent leftists, uh, or you know, the more sort of centrist, like liberal types in the Democrat Party. They're saying, hey, this is like causing us a lot more problems than is necessary, because if we just kept quiet about this, you know, we're kind of winning on every issue. And this seems to be the one thing that is really mobilizing people and making them radical. Um, but the problem is they can say that, but it's not really changing anything like the, the, the left has kind of uh, it's become like the Frankenstein's monster, right? Like the elites created it in a sense through the academic system, um, you know, through NGO funding and so on. But now this ideology of, of uh, victimization and so on has taken on a life of its own. And it's like, you know, the the sort of uh, blue haired uh, liberal, uh, you know, graduate in, in 
gender studies, whatever. It's like they're not paying attention to what Bill Maher has to say. They're not paying attention to what the New York Times opinion pieces had to say. And they don't care if this issue is unpopular and it's going to cost like the Democrats votes in a midterm election or something. It's like, who cares? So I don't think there's any breaks on that train. And yeah, uh, that's, you know, that was the whole basis for, for my argument is like, there's no breaks on that train. And now for the first time, people have sort of an alternative. And so I just see like both of those things accelerate. It's a good answer, Keith. So maybe you could tell our, our viewers and listeners where they can find uh, more of your content. Uh, where How can they find you on Twitter to start with, assuming you last last out the week? Yeah, well, uh, I'm getting a lot of engagement on Twitter right now since uh, Elon <laughs> interacted with me. Um, so I don't know if that's good or bad for my account. Maybe they'll like put a special... Uh, Maybe I have some special protection because the boss interacted with me. I hope so. <laughs> the I'm probably getting re- yeah, I'm probably getting reported a lot right now. But yeah, it's uh, Keith Woods YT, like YouTube YT is my username there. Uh, you'll also find me on, on YouTube, just Keith Woods. And yeah, I put all my links in my Twitter bio and all my YouTube videos. So you'll find everything there. Awesome. And I think they've just been dropped into this conversations chat so people can can find you on them platforms as well, including your Substack, I believe. Excellent. All right, Keith, mm-hmm. this has been a pleasure and it's, it's flown by. Thank you. Thank you very much for coming on and speaking to me. I enjoyed it. Thank you.